0: All right, would you join me, open your Bible to the book of Galatians, New Testament book of Galatians chapter three. We're uh, we're pausing the James series and the reason is the end of the text that we looked at and studied last Sunday gestured in the direction of something that means a lot to us as a church and it's the glorious gospel of adoption. So here's how James one ended last week. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And so we're pressing pause because that is a huge idea for us as a church and God has had his hand on the life of the church of Brook Hills for many years, giving us a passion to enter into the wonderful work of orphan care. And the beauty of Galatians chapter three into Galatians chapter four is Paul is giving you the why this massive foundation stone of gospel truth that energizes and animates the work of the church in orphan care ministry. And so if you'd follow along in God's word as I read to us this wonderful passage, Galatians chapter three, I'm gonna start reading in verse 25. Since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for through faith You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise now, I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. And so here in Galatians, Paul opens up the wonder and the glory of adoption. What we have here in this text is a name, a cry, and a commission a name, a cry, and a commission. And so giving these three points in advance, let's just start with the first one. We've been given a name. One of the great books that I read, the very first book that I read as a Christian in college as I wanted to grow in my faith was a little green book at the time called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer being one of the leading theologians of the 20th century, the elder statesman of evangelicalism in many ways, at the end of the 20th century. And his book, Knowing God, is an absolute thunderbolt. It is electrifying, it is a modern classic. And here's one of the things that J.I. Packer says in that excellent book. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Look down in your copy of God's Word, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So we're talking about sonship, we're talking about family, Gentiles receive full family status by faith in Christ. That's the big truth that Paul is bringing to bear on this this church in Galatia. So you think about it, if you climb into the first century world, uh, you can pick up some things, right? In the first century Jewish world, you had two categories of people. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. And Gentile was just the word that covered everybody else. Right, so there were Jews and non-Jews. There's, there's us and then there's them, the other people. And the them, the, the Gentiles, they were outsiders to the covenant. They were thought of as, as morally dirty. If you got around them or if you had a meal with them, now you have to go wash up ceremonially before you can go into God's presence because you've been around those people, the dirty people, right, the Gentiles. Now that's the idea. Remember uh, when we studied the book of Acts, we got to Acts chapter 10, God gives a vision to the apostle Peter and God says, Peter, I want you to go to, the, to a surprising place. I want you to go into the home of a guy named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. So, you know, walk inside and I want you to have a meal with Cornelius and his Gentile friends. And Peter, as only Peter, has the moxie to do. Peter says, no, I can't do that. I'm sorry, (laughs) God has to come around three times and say, listen, I'm actually not taking no for an answer. You're gonna go in there. And, And when Peter says, I'm not gonna go in because I'm gonna be unclean, and God's response is, do not call impure what God has made clean. So obviously, something's changed. The wind directions have changed in the new covenant. And so here in Galatians, the apostle Paul, he's not just calling Gentile Christians clean, He's calling Gentile believers sons, heirs, children of the promise. Actually, he's saying they're related to Abraham along with the rest of us. These are shocking words that he's bringing to bear. So God's plan from the beginning was to create one family gathered from all nations who become his by faith in the Messiah by faith in Jesus Christ. And I say it's God's original plan, just to highlight, it's not plan B. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the one family of faith, the one people of God, wasn't an afterthought. It was the original, it was on the original blueprints. God says to Abraham, Abraham, through your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So on day one, God's promise in the Abrahamic covenant was going to include Gentiles. It was going to go to Abraham, to his offspring, through his offspring, and then bring the world, the nations, into the covenant family. Paul is saying that day has arrived. To read through the New Testament, here's the thing though, right? So there's, theology is one thing, but practice is another. Seeing these massive truths Uh, applied in the life of the church, demonstrated in the way they treated one another is a whole different thing. That's why there's so much tension in the letters of the New Testament where you can feel they're trying to work out the theology into their lives. They're trying to actually believe and demonstrate that they were actually one family, one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is over all and through all and in all. So, so, Again, climb into the metaphor that's being used here. It's an adoption metaphor, and it's meaningful, this metaphor. So so if you're newly adopted into a family, imagine it, you're newly adopted into a family, there is a way for the older children in the family to make you feel like you are officially totally inside. By contrast, there's a way for the older kids to actually make you feel like, yeah, you, you live here, but, you're not actually the same as us. There's a way for either one of those to play out. So if you come to our house, uh, there's, a, there's a little table uh, just off the living room and underneath a drawer, you just see this stack of big books and those are called, I'm not sure that they're gonna live for very much longer with our iPhones. They're called photo albums. Right, so I maybe should explain it to this side of the room. Kind of just a bunch of pictures. Uh, you flip through pages. <laughs> So I'm not sure how long the photo album is going to survive, but here's the idea. If you grab one of those photo albums and you start flipping through, you see the whole story of my family, right? So... You see the day that Paul and I got married and you see uh, our wedding day and all of the events that transpired there and then you keep flipping pages and then you see, oh, they're, they're in Longview, Texas and oh, oh, now they have a baby and there's, there's Hunter, their oldest and then here comes Will and then here comes Ellie and you, you see the family develop and grow and, and then you see upwards basketball is a whole era, there's a whole phase there, right? And you're moving through all the phases the more you flip through those books and then you pull out another book and you're moving further and further ahead. And what you're seeing is the story of how our family grew. Well, imagine that, but first century. Imagine that, but first century church. So the Old Testament history, all the books in the Old Testament, that's basically the Jewish photo album. It's it's the stories of their long history. There's genealogies that explain this person begat, this person begat that. So it's the family and then you're flipping through. If If you're a Jewish person, a believer, In that family, then you're flipping through these pictures and you say, oh, look at that one. Remember that? That's when God made the promise to Abraham. That's kind of where it all started. Then you flip a few pages and there's Moses. Oh, the Red Sea. That's so cool, right? Oh, there's the... There's the whole issue with the golden calf. Let's flip past that as fast as we can, right? So some embarrassing moments that we wish kind of never happened that we're not super proud of. And then you flip over, you see, oh, there's, there's David, Grandpa David. That's when he was dancing before the ark. And you can see in the background of the picture, his wife is covering her eyes because she's kind of embarrassed of the way he's going so hard in these, with his dance moves, right? So you're just flipping through. These are your stories. This is your family un, uh, playing itself out in these pictures. And you can imagine though, It's almost as though these Jewish believers looking through the photo album of the Old Testament and they turn around and they say to their Gentile brothers and sisters, that's too bad you don't have any pictures. It's too bad we don't have any any pictures of your grandparents. They've been newly adopted into the family and they feel like outsiders. And if they ask the question, do you have pictures of your family? The apostle Paul butts in in Galatians in this passage and he says, yeah, these are the pictures. It's the same pictures. David's their guy. Moses is their guy. Abraham's, they're the seed of Abraham by faith. So it's like Paul, he opens the Old Testament photo album and he says to Gentiles, these are your ancestors too. Faith is the family resemblance. The idea being the most telling family resemblance is faith. You go to the the archives in Hebrews chapter 11, where you have all the great stories of some of the most notable people in the entire Old Testament. And what does that chapter begin with? It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then it says, by faith, Abraham, the patriarch. By faith, Sarah, his wife. By faith, Moses did this. And then Paul's turning here and saying, by faith, you're one of us. By faith, you've believed on the Messiah. By faith, you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Chapter three, you see it, verse 28, shocking words. There is no Jew or Greek. No distinctions, out with distinctions. No Jew or Greek, no slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, Abraham's kids, Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. What's Paul doing in this shocking thunderclap of a passage in the first century? Essentially, he's singing the song that many of us learned in VBS growing up. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, right. And then you go through the whole thing. Paul is saying, in Christ, we're one family. Adoption confers full family status and get this the purpose of the incarnation was adoption the purpose of the incarnation was adoption look at chapter 4 verse 4 with me when the time came to completion God sent his son this is incarnation born of a woman born under the law to redeem buy, to purchase to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, there's all kinds of just crazy awesome stuff happening right there in those words. Interestingly, the language that Paul uses about those who were under the law actually refers to the Jews, those who are under the law. He's including believing Jews in the adoption story. Paul Himself a Jew says in verse five that we might receive adoption as sons. Not just you might receive adoption, but we in Christ, Jews and Gentiles are adopt. There's only one way into God's new covenant family, adoption through Jesus Christ. So as a Christian, adoption is your story and sonship is your identity. So basically what Paul is doing there is He's saying, picture fallen humanity, the whole of fallen humanity as one vast global orphanage. And God in Jesus Christ comes and buys his people and brings them home. It's an adoption story. And he says, the the price that was paid for your adoption is the life of his son. If you've been involved in international adoption, you know it is very, very expensive. There has never been an international adoption that has been this costly. God sends his son, and the son's life is the price for the kids. Adoption's your story. Sonship's your identity. What do we see in our passage? We see a name, and we see a cry. A cry. Chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, there's the name, that's what you are, your identity, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's the first word God's spirit teaches every new believer is Abba. You have a father now. Russ Moore wrote a great book many years ago on the glorious gospel of adoption And in it, he relates this story. I'll read it to you. The story of their own adoption of their two sons. The creepiest sound, he writes, I've ever heard was nothing at all. My wife, Maria, and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. I stopped and pulled Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here... If we listen carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boys' room. Little Sergei, now Timothy, Smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar like. But neither boy made a sound. Each time we visited them, we would read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in total silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. As by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears, and that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim, Benjamin, fell back in his crib and let out a guttural, yell it seemed he knew maybe for the first time he would be heard on some primal level he knew he had a father and a mother now that's the Holy Spirit's first job God brings you to faith in Jesus Christ now you're a son and the spirit comes into your newfound faith and says I'm going to teach you your first word Abba you have a father now Why do we need to know this? For 2,000 years, God's children have struggled with assurance. Some of you here in this room, you're a believer in Jesus and you struggle with assurance. Christians wonder, "Does, does God love me or does God tolerate me? What brought me into God's family? What keeps me in God's family? Do I ingratiate myself every day and keep his love alive Or is his love forever? How solid is my salvation? How solid is my belonging in this family of God? And the gospel shouts, not slaves, but sons, even heirs. It's one of the purposes of gathered worship is for us to sing ourselves more deeply convinced into the truth of the gospel, right? So that when the accuser is whispering your ear, you don't belong to him. Look, the rest of them can sing, but not you. And the gospel comes and says, no, you do belong. You're his child. You're not slaves. You're sons, and if sons, then heirs. So why sons? Sons, this language is used of sons in the metaphor because only sons in the ancient world, only sons stood to inherit the family estate. And guess which son inherited the the lion's share of the family estate. The oldest son, the firstborn. The firstborn was the favored son. That was, that's why it was so unusual that Joseph had the coat of many colors. It's like, no, this doesn't belong to you. You're not the favored son. You're not the first son. The first son, the eldest born son, was the heir of the family wealth. My, uh, my dad's dad, Grandpa Harold, was uh, a trip. And when they came to our house, they lived in Oklahoma. And when they came and visited our house, I remember sitting at the kitchen table and just listening to Grandpa Harold tell these just wild stories. I don't know which of them were true, maybe none of them. And he would just tell stories. And as I'm listening, he told one about Panthers. He was walking through Washington and he said, a panther came out of the woods. And he said, I put my hand on one of the panthers. And I was like, no way. And then he, he said, I walked about another half a mile and here comes another panther. And I had panthers. It's like, later on, I'm like, there's no way that's true, right? But as I'm listening to these stories and there were all kinds of stories and I would just die laughing and I was on the end of my seat. And I could just imagine at any moment, I thought my nanny, his wife, is just gonna walk by and whisper in my ear and say, you're his favorite, Because I'm just, I am so there for all the stories, for all the Grandpa Harold jokes, right? Paul says to these Gentile believers, they would never have imagined that they could be counted among the favored one, the oldest son. You're not just sons, you're the heir, you're his favorite. Paul wasn't demoting Jewish believers, but he was raising Gentile believers to full family status. I love this statement from Russ Moore. Adopted is a past tense verb, not an adjective. So in case your grammar has been lost on you, uh, let me just show you how Russ Moore unpacks that statement so helpfully. Adopted, he writes, is a past tense verb, not an adjective. There's no such thing in God's economy as, quote, an adopted child. Only a child who was adopted into the family. Adopted defines how you came into the household, but it doesn't define you as some other sort of family member. It's how you came in, but it's not some different status now that you're inside. We're all sons. In other words, adoption refers to this process by which God makes us his own. For 2,000 years, God's children have struggled with assurance and for 2,000 years, the father has been saying, I'll never let you go. I'll never leave you or forsake you. God never tires of speaking words of blessing, affection, promise, benediction over his people. He loves doing that. So the question is, if we understand the doctrine of adoption, what does it do to us? And here we move from a name and a cry to a commission, a commission. There was a uh, popular country song that came out 15 or 20 years ago, and uh, it was a lullaby. And in the song, the chorus, a mother was singing to her child, and these were the words of the chorus, how long do you want to be loved is forever enough. She just sang that over and over. And that's what God says to his children in the gospel. It creates this impulse to speak those words to those who long to hear them. it's, It's not just that grace comes to us. Grace doesn't come to us and stop with us. Grace comes to us and then we become a people of compassion who move out into the world with that same grace. Welcome people inside. Here's the point. God uses rescued orphans to rescue orphans. Not as saviors, but as stewards stewards of a message that's transformed us and now it shapes the whole way that we live. I heard a dad share a story of how their family eventually adopted two siblings and these siblings were sisters of one another. One was four years old, the other was nine years old. The nine-year-old had a lot of traumatic memories and her behavior was more visible in a lot of ways and every home that they went to they wanted the younger sister they didn't want her and she felt this kind of weight of shame and, uh, and the man interacting with them who was going to eventually adopt them he said you could see this, this shame that she carried with her and as he got to know her more and more he asked her what's the hardest thing and he said she answered very honestly and very vulnerably she said nobody wants me And he said, I'll never forget the words that she said. She said, I don't fit anywhere. And they would eventually adopt both of these girls, but before it was finalized, someone from their church came over with a camera and captured a picture of the whole family with these girls included in the family, all of them together. And secretly they had that picture converted into a puzzle. And so when they went to the courtroom and everything was finalized and they received full custody, they they came back home and there on the kitchen table was a fully assembled puzzle, the picture of the family with only two puzzle pieces that were missing. And the dad said, what's missing? And the nine-year-old said, us. And they slid these two pieces into place and the wife said, does it look like you fit now? Here, here's what gospel grace does. It changes our whole insides. It changes our way of seeing and being in the world. It takes a whole church to care for the fatherless. You know, in the first century, unwanted babies was a, a common thing. And they had a process which was called exposure, which just meant that if you didn't want the child or couldn't afford to take care of the child, you would just leave the child in some space. You would either leave the child in the marketplace and hope that somebody would pick the child up and bring it home, or in some cases you would leave the child in the woods on the outskirts of town and just know that they obviously couldn't survive very long. And you know what the Christians started doing? You read Rodney Stark's book on early Christianity. The Christians started walking the woods just outside of town and the Christians would walk through the marketplace and if they saw a stray kid who didn't have family, they'd adopt that kid and bring him home. They'd walk in the woods and they'd just listen for cries and if they heard a kid crying they'd go swoop that kid up and bring him home and make him there. You can just imagine the church at Ephesus and this booming nursery ministry because all these kids were being found and they were being made our own. Caring for orphans is what gospel changed people do. Why? Because it goes all the way back to your origin story. What's your origin story? Ephesians chapter one. God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glory. Every time you and I remember the gospel, we are remembering adoption. We are remembering how you got in, how I got in. God turned enemies into family. God set a table for us as sons, and he calls us royal sons. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. The church should demonstrate this kind of culture of radical belonging for all who believe. Ray Cortez, a a pastor in Lakanto, Florida, pastors of Presbyterian church there for many years, and years ago I heard him speak, and he was talking about the uh, story of his own life and a crisis they went through with their oldest child. And he's talking to his church. I'm the outsider, so I don't know the story. But they know the story as he rehearses it with them together as a faith family. And he talked about how when our oldest son, he said, was seven years old, he had a tumor on his spinal column. They found that. And when they went to consult with specialists, it just became a seriously grave event. He said, we were an hour north of the city, And they said, the surgery is going to take seven hours. Everything needs to go into gear very fast. He's going to need a lot of blood. And so uh, he said, they told us it's the day before the surgery was necessary. So we need a lot of blood and it needs to come in by tomorrow. And we're an hour away from town. And so he calls back to his church family, notifies the church family. And he said, so we drove home that hour. He said, that hour was the worst and heaviest hour of my entire life. And he said, we went straight to the blood bank. And he said, when I got there, of course, you know what happened. I got to the blood bank and there were all of you. And he said, I stood in line to give blood to my son after all of you were already lined up. And the next words he said were so powerful. He said, in the body of my son is the blood of this church. That's the kind of church, the gospel alone, can create. Salvation leads not just to worship, praise God. Salvation leads to worship, which leads to service, right? The saved become the sent. Brook Hills, hear me. If it changes everything, it changes everything when we realize that this is our story. It changes everything when we realize we are loved and we are his Forever, when we realize adoption isn't some church program, it's our story. Let's live in it.